but my Redeemer liveth. Words that uh, Thomas obviously would have had trouble saying. Good to be here with you this morning. Good to be with you this week. It's been great to get to know many of you through uh, the Wednesday evening uh, that we spent together, the Friday evening that we spent together, smaller groups. And I'm really looking forward to working with you in the future as you talk more and uh, try to identify more clearly who you are in the ministry that you'll carry out in this community. I'm really appreciative that um, the National Church has brought me to Comox because this is where my sister and brother-in-law live, Bev and Scott Ager. So I've been able to spend time with them, and because my wife retired three weeks ago, Catherine's been able to join me. So it's been a wonderful week that I've been able to uh, enjoy not only here at this congregation, but also with them. For those of you uh, in congregations like this one that follow the lectionary, over the three-year cycle, you are able to get a pretty good sample of what we find in Scripture. Each week designates a reading from the Hebrew Bible, the Psalms, the Epistles, and the Gospels. But interestingly enough, on this Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, regardless of which year you're in, you get the same reading. Doubting Thomas. Which uh, is probably a good thing because I think he's probably the patron saint of the 21st century. <laughs> Adam Gopnik, a writer for the New York Times, has said that in past generations, doubt was a subset of faith. Doubt was always expressed and understood within the context of a larger sense of faith for people. But in our generation, it's the opposite. It's faith that's now a subset of doubt. And he claims that it's that way because of our scientific worldview that we've developed, where we are taught to suspend belief and to use questioning and skepticism in order to arrive at truth. So, where past generations were much more certain about things, for us, doubt is certain and faith is a real challenge. At the Appreciative Inquiry on Wednesday evening, somebody said that what she really appreciated about this con congregation is that she can express her doubts and that she's not judged because of them. And I think that's really important for communities of faith. Because if we give the impression that we all have rock-solid faith, then we're misleading both others and ourselves. But I don't want to talk to you about Thomas today. <laughs> we hear enough about Thomas, I think, when we hear this reading every, every time. But I'd like to talk about the first part of the passage, which we sometimes skip over in order to get to him. Namely, what happened on that Easter evening, when the disciples were in a room behind a locked door. It says, out of fear... Some translations said the Jews, as this one, I think probably fear of the authorities is a better understanding. And the reason they did so is that even though they had heard from Mary that she had seen the resurrected Christ, they themselves had not. And so the graphic violence of Jesus' death was tattooed in their minds. For they knew that that same fate may well await them. So they hid. 
And it was in that state that the resurrected Christ appeared to them. And his first words were, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then he breathed his spirit upon them. And what strikes me about this particular passage is the incredible trust that Jesus was putting in his disciples. It was as if he was saying, look, you've got everything you need, even though you don't know it. You've been part of my ministry in Galilee. You are now witnesses to my victory over death. So go out and get them. Now, any of us who are micromanagers, and my guess is that all of us are at some level. If we've ever looked over somebody's shoulder to make sure they're doing the job right, if we've ever badgered kids to make sure they do their homework, and then checked it twice to make sure it's right before it's handed in, anybody who's ever nagged their spouse that they're driving too fast or too slow or too close to the curb or too close to the car in front of them, know how hard it is to trust another person to do something well. So imagine what it's like for Jesus to put trust in matters of far more ultimate concern. It's like he was handing the keys to the car of the kingdom to a bunch of 16-year-olds and letting them know that they could drive home safely. The description, the story about Thomas is really about how much we're willing to trust Christ. But this is about how much Christ is willing to trust us. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, a member of the clergy, has, says that, has said that we do not fully understand the humiliation of the church in the 21st century. We have not understood the depths to which our reputation has sunk in recent decades. Because how we see the church from inside is very different from how people see it from the outside. And please appreciate that we are yoked together as the church with all who claim the name of Christian. We are yoked to Yahoo fundamentalists. We are yoked to Roman Catholics, to Eastern Orthodox, to people on the far left. Because outside of the church, We've all got the same name. So many claim that we are incredibly judgmental towards any who think or believe differently than we do. Certainly I've met a number of people from the LGBTQ community who literally cannot stomach the idea of crossing the threshold of a church. They've been so damaged and so hurt by what has been said about them. I know women who will have nothing to do with Christianity because they believe the basic tenets of the faith are misogynist, starting with a patriarchal God who does not give any space for the feminine. They see us holding on to a worldview which is very different than their own, giving no credence to scientific discoveries of how the universe came into being, how the world came into being, how the human species came into being. 
And we hold on to this understanding of a supreme being somewhere up there in the sky who looks like us, who judges us, who controls what's going on, will send people to eternal damnation down there somewhere. And they won't have anything to do with that. People are scandalized by the fact that church leaders who are supposed to be exemplary in their moral behavior have been convicted of abusing innocent victims, physical and sexual abuse, and then finding their acts covered over by those who want to protect the institution. And of course, in our own country, to learn more and more about the residential school scandal by which, in collusion with our government, the church has sought to eradicate ways of life, cultures, languages of our indigenous peoples, somehow thinking by doing so, we were Christianizing them. I could go on. But I don't think humiliation is too strong a word to describe how the church is seen. And we have to conclude that we have not been driving that car very well. And that we're somehow way off course. And this is hard for us because for us, this institution matters. It's a place that gives us life. It gives us hope. It gives us direction. It gives us a sense of belonging and community. It's where we can come and dwell on matters that are eternal. But as the world sees us so differently, we tend just to circle the wagons, to hold on to the status quo as tightly as we can. And in fact, we're back in a room with locked doors out of fear. Fear of what it will mean if we open ourselves to all that's going on in the world around us. Fear of what it's going to mean to have to change. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I send you. Those are the words Christ directed to those disciples and continues to direct to us. So how was the Father sent? How was Jesus sent by the Father? And therefore, how are we being sent? To whom? How? Why? Well, the passage gives us a couple of clues, beginning with those words, peace be with you. The resurrected Christ came to bring peace to those who were living in fear. That word of peace, of shalom, of salam, of wholeness, completeness, was one that shattered their fear and unlocked the door behind which they were hiding. So who in this community is living in fear? Perhaps physical fear. Perhaps of discrimination, of hatred who needs to hear that word of wholeness and of peace. And even more, we live in this age of, of anxiety. 
But it seems we're endlessly worried about the unknown future that may be scary. We worry, we fret. We're concerned of things that are being lost. Did you know that anxiety disorders are now the number one mental health issue in this country? Surpassed depression, although the two are often very closely aligned. Many of us are not quite in the disorder stage, but we certainly know anxiety. Who in this community needs to hear a word of peace? Who needs to hear that the future is not ultimately in our hands, but in God's? In the hands of a good, loving, compassionate, just, and kind God. It's time to give it over. And to find freedom from that which encloses us. Something else that Jesus said to those disciples was, if you forgive those, they're forgiven. If you don't, then they're not. And I think this has sometimes been misconstrued as if God's depending on us to decide who's going to be in the forgiven category and who isn't. I think Jesus was just stating the obvious. If you forgive, it's done. It's over with. If you don't, then you and the other person are still in the clutches of anger. Of the toxic relationships from which there's no release. He's just stating the obvious. But I ask you, who in this community needs to know they are freed from a burden of guilt? A guilt from which we've been freed by Christ on the cross. Who needs to know that you hold the key that will unlock that door of burden? What else? As the Father sent me, so I send you. Let's look back on Jesus' ministry. We can put it in different categories, but I would suggest four to you. Simple. Now, I know sermons are usually three points. But if we spent a couple of days with you, I know you are unusually bright. <laughs> and that you'll be able to manage a four-point show. <laughs> Four things that I think categorize Jesus' ministry. Number one, he taught. He taught by the seashore. He taught on mountainsides. He taught in villages and he taught in the country. He taught with stories, he taught with parables. He taught in small groups and to large crowds. And he taught that the kingdom of God had come. We didn't have to wait for it. It was here and among us. For those with eyes to see and ears to hear. What did he teach? Mary Lulie summarized it this way. Jesus spoke to the crowds of debts cleared by mercy, small things of infinite worth, mighty things reduced to dust, broken bread instead of broken bodies, Tiny sparrows, counted hairs, banished demons, truth declared to tyrants, put away swords, found sheep, found coins, found children, a hidden way inside, 
a buried pearl, living water, branches, and vine. All pointing to this kingdom of God that was among the people and is among us. So who needs to hear about the kingdom of God? Who needs to know that they're invited into a completely different way of seeing themselves and seeing the world? Because you've been given that key to open the door and to invite people in, into freedom. Jesus taught, Jesus healed. He healed lepers, he healed the blind, the deaf, the paralyzed, the mentally ill. He brought people out of the brokenness in which they found themselves and gave them a wholeness of healing. Who in this community is broken? Who needs to hear a healing word? for their bodies, their minds, their spirits. Because Christ gives you the key to open that door and call people into freedom. Jesus taught, Jesus healed, Jesus fed people. One of the few stories that we find in all four Gospels is the feeding of the multitude. And however you understand that story, whether you want to take it literally or metaphorically, it doesn't matter. The end of the line is saying that Jesus gave nourishment to hungry people. Who in this community is hungry? Physically hungry, spiritually hungry, emotionally hungry. Because you've been given the key to open that door and call them in freedom. Jesus taught, Jesus healed. Jesus fed, and Jesus hung out with the wrong people. He touched lepers, the unclean, brought them back into community life. He ate meals with tax collectors and all kinds of other undesirables that nobody wanted to have anything to do with. And told them that they were as important to the kingdom of God as anybody else. So who in this community is on the edges? Who's forgotten? Who's lonely? Who needs to find a place of belonging? Be welcomed with radical hospitality that lets them know that they matter as much as anybody else because you've been given the key to open that door and call them into freedom. A few years ago, friends of ours got a new golden retriever puppy. And I helped them build a large pen in the backyard. They had a large property. And so they built a large pen for this dog. And uh, so Dusty spent a lot of time in that pen. It was large and he loved his pen. One day the door was left open. The dog stayed where he was. Because he loved his space. He knew its boundaries. It was where he belonged. Thereafter, the door was always open. Dusty stayed where he was. And I think that's like us. 
The resurrection announces that the door that was locked is open. And we've been told to believe. Leave our hiding. And that others can leave their hiding. All we have to do is do it. As the Father has sent me, now I send you.